0: Hey, how you doing, Fats? I oh, know, How you doing? Yeah, good to see you, man. Ooh, it's hot out there. I know. Mm-hmm. Thanks for letting me come to your home. Fats has created a sanctuary for himself on the city's south side. It's miles away from East Garfield Park, where he works trying to prevent shootings by stepping in to stop gang conflicts. He lives with his wife, Tia Strong, and Tia's teenage daughter.
1: We're we at the Strongs residence, and is. This, this
0: it's a good neighborhood. It looks a little different than, like, where you're working in Garfield Park, right? Oh, it's way different. I get that homey feeling when I get here. Despite the homey feeling, he still frequently hears gunshots not too far off in the distance. But the modest houses here are well cared for. He and Tia have a brick bungalow. Buying it was a big decision. I
1: had him up, man. We both sat down and talked to him, like, I'm not shacking up again, like. You gonna be my wife? We gotta make a decision before we buy this house. <laughs> she said I didn't propose. So I didn't ask her. When I asked her mother, her mother said yes. <laughs> so, yeah. That was like my proposal, right?
2: <laughs> and it just kind of went from it just went from there. We we never had a housewarming, so we just made it wedding slash housewarming, and we invited all our close personal friends and family. It was a great time.
0: Fats' salary working to stop murders on Chicago's west side isn't enough to pay for the house. After taxes, he brings in less than 28000 per year. It's more than most people in East Garfield Park make, but Fats is nearly 50. His job is stressful and demands he be on call almost 24-7. After years of hustling, he doesn't have any savings to speak of, so this life he's trying to build, it's always on the edge of slipping away. He says there are times he'd like to take Tia out on a date and he just can't. But today is payday, and Fats has been looking forward to a long-promised raise. His bosses told him it would finally be in this check, the one that dropped into his account overnight. Did you check your check out? Did you get the raise? <laughs> yeah. What's that?
1: Uh, It was a few extra dollars on there, but...
0: The raise
1: is not what he was hoping for. No, nah, it wasn't. You know, when you don't make as much and you're putting your all into it, it's a big difference.
2: I just feel like the people who are actually doing the work that's out there, um, even risking their daily lives, it's not a price you can put on that. So I, I think that they probably are
0: underpaid, you know, for what they're doing and, and the work that they put in. For guys like Fats, after years of hustling, the anti-violence work offered them their first real opportunity for a legitimate salary and a career. But the money's not great. The workers have their own history of trauma they're grappling with, and they're wading back into the center of the city's relentless violence, but without the resources they need to really be successful. That's what this week's episode is about. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Patrick Smith, along with Ceci Mannion. This is Motive. They just
1: got the shooting down there. Right here. How are we gonna change the mindset of somebody from the street if y'all don't even want to pay us? I was a game banger. I fought. I shot. So whatever went along with that lifestyle, that's what I did.
2: I would have had nowhere else to go that I knew my kids would have been okay,
0: but to that block. Episode three: Underpaid and Underappreciated. This season, we've talked about the big bet America is making on anti-violence work. Ceci and I were talking about it one day in the studio while we were working on this episode. I mentioned that President Biden has talked about anti-violence work several times. She said she hadn't really heard about it. I don't even listen to politics, to be honest with you. President Biden talked about it in early 2021. He had this big press conference in the Rose Garden at the White House. Cities across the country are experiencing historic spikes in
2: homicides, as the law enforcement can tell you. The violence is hitting black and brown communities the hardest. Homicide is the leading cause of death of black boys and men ages 15 to 34. The leading cause of death. He's acknowledging it, but what are they doing about it?
0: One of the things he said he was going to do about it, his solution to this crisis he's talking about, A big part of it is community-based anti-violence work. The federal government pledged to spend a billion dollars on the kind of work that you and FATS are doing.
2: We discussed the need to support community violence intervention. These are local programs that utilize trusted messengers, community members and leaders, to work directly with people who are most likely to commit gun crimes or become victims of gun crimes. We know who they are. They intervene before it's too
0: late, these interrupters. I agree. Yeah. I agree. He's talking about you, basically.
2: Right. Um, There's a lot of us out there, and I think it's the people that are on the ground that want to do the work, that want to make that change. Um, And I know it can can make – it's been happening. It's been working.
0: We're definitely still in the experimental phase of this kind of work, right? To see, like, can we really bring down shootings by doing – outreach work by doing victim victim advocacy work like what you do, even though we're in the experimental phase, a lot of people now are talking about this like this is an experiment that we should really try. Absolutely. I agree. Because this idea, street outreach, has been around for a really long time, right? And about five years ago here in Chicago, like 2016, which is around when you started with Enlace, right? Right. All these philanthropic groups got together and said, we're going to fund this in Chicago. We're going to put a bunch of money behind it. Now, the city, the state, the county, they're all putting money into it. The president is talking about street outreach at the White House. Does it feel to you like your work is having a moment right now? Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah.
2: Everybody's talking about it. But where's the money? Where is it? That's what I want to know. Maybe I should say with the president. Where'd you put this money? Who'd you give it to? Who's delivering it? Because where is the money? If you start talking about it on the news and everybody wants to talk about it, where is the money? I would love to sit with the president. I would love it. What would you say to him? I think that they don't know what comes into the work. They think maybe it's just out there talking to you. It's more to that. Me as a victim advocate, these people... They don't have money for bandages. They don't have money for sailing water. Some of them don't even have money for their prescriptions because they don't have insurance. Walkers, crutches, canes, bath chairs. I look for that all by myself by donations or will find it cheap. And I pay for it. And I think the president needs to know it's more to, more to that than just hiring an outreach worker and putting him out there. Or hiring a victim advocate and putting him out there.
0: So he only knows, like, the tip of the iceberg. Right. Right. And the money that's getting there, at least from what you can see, is not enough.
2: Absolutely not. The kind of work we do, we don't get paid enough. Why would you want to go do violence prevention work if you can go to a store and get paid more money? With times now you got to make money especially if you got a family. I do it because that's my calling.
0: Sassy works for a little village nonprofit called Enlace. Fats works for a Garfield Park nonprofit called Breakthrough. Both groups have gotten public funding, including federal dollars that came to them through state grants. After 6 years on the job and a lifetime of relevant experience, Sessie takes home about $3,000 per month. By comparison, the minimum a Chicago police officer with six years on the job can make is $95,000 a year. And those police jobs, they come with pensions and very strong protections. The jobs for people doing anti-violence work are not nearly as stable.
1: Uh, the oh yeah.
0: It's summer at the Violence Prevention Office in East Garfield Park, and morale is low. Humpty, one of the outreach workers, was just told by the big boss that his position is only guaranteed for another month. It's the main topic of conversation and concern as outreach workers filter in and out of the Spartan storefront that serves as their headquarters. Vernell, the former gang member from Rockwell Gardens, is certain it is all going to work out. But the news has Humpty and Fats threatening mutiny. We're a team. like You
1: can't split us up. If if he go, I gotta go. So if he leave, if they don't hire him full time in September,
0: I might leave. Humpty recently got out of prison. He was recruited to join the street outreach team instead of going back to what got him locked up in the first place. And for
1: Humpty to come home and adapt to this and the way he's adapted and the way he's working
0: is unbelievable. Like, for you to change your mindset. Humpty won't talk to me on tape. It's like he's allergic to my microphone or something. Won't agree to an interview no matter how many times I try. Fat says he's invaluable. Humpty is in with one of the gangs at Rockwell that Fats wouldn't otherwise be able to talk to. He's the one who worked out the misunderstanding over the stolen SUV and the shootout at Rockwell that we heard about last week, the one where Leeski and I witnessed the first round of shooting. Now y'all don't want to hire him?
1: What? What is that about? So you can't play with people's livelihood like that, and you're trying to make a difference. You're not making a difference. You're making it worse. Because... You don't want a person like him back on the streets causing mayhem or you didn't fire him. You're trying to do the work in the neighborhood he come from. So, you know, of course he'll be like, no, take that shit somewhere else. Don't bring that shit over here. We don't want it. Now now he's back gang banging chiefing
0: or whatever the case may be. We don't want that shit over here. Beyond damaging relationships over at Rockwell there's a risk that kicking Humpty off the payroll could turn him back from part of the solution to another problem for Fats. You could go either way easily because, you know, the street's here
1: with open arms no matter what. It's always there. It's always open. That's the easiest thing to do, something wrong. The the hardest part is doing something right. And for them to just say his job is only going to be just September... That that one thing can send you back, so. And I've been tempted.
0: What does that temptation feel like?
1: It's just like any any addict is you know, selling drugs is an addiction. You know you you make the money, you lavish, you having a good time, you you know you have no worries
0: really. It's not pretty to hear essentially a threat. Keep paying Humpty or he could make life worse for everyone in his corner of East Garfield. But the whole idea of this kind of work is that the organizations are employing guys who are so close to the gang life they can still touch it. That's why they have the connections and the cachet to mediate disputes. And the outreach work is a jobs program for guys who might otherwise struggle to find legitimate employment. Right now, the money is flowing into this anti-violence work. The president is talking up street outreach at the White House. There's millions in public and private dollars filtering down to organizations like the one that Fats and Humpty work for. But this instability for Humpty, teetering on the edge between mediating violence and possibly causing it, it's a reminder of how tenuous all the support feels to people on the ground.
1: They don't care about us at all, but they always call us superheroes. Not no superheroes. Y'all treating us like we part of a third-world country over here, basically. Nobody wants to pay us. Nobody wants to see what we do and how
0: we do it. And the elephant in the room. Shooting numbers in Chicago are still really bad, higher than they've been in decades, even as more dollars have poured into community-based violence prevention. The whole point of this work is to reduce gun violence, At some point, if that doesn't happen, the money is going to dry up. In the meantime, workers like Fats and Humpty are being asked to pour their heart and soul into this incredibly difficult job, while outsiders ponder whether their efforts amount to anything at all. Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: Back at Joey's house, the gunshot victim we met in Episode 1, Joey is starting to recover from his injuries. It's been a little more than a month since he was shot 11 times outside of his home. Joey is moving better now. He's able to make it from his typical perch in the front room out to the backyard, where he and Ceci negotiate over who should sit where. Is that, is that your seat or where's good for you?
2: <laughs> no, sit in this
0: one. Oh, that's the red one looks good.
2: Yeah, sit here. Uh-uh. It'll hold you. Come on. It'll hold my thing in.
0: Ceci is making her weekly visit to Joey to check on his progress physically and mentally, help him connect with police and game plan about how to get Joey out of the neighborhood and into somewhere safer. Joey's backyard is surrounded by a wooden fence tall enough that you can't see over it without craning your neck. It's the reason why Joey feels safe enjoying the beautiful Chicago summer.
2: How are you
3: feeling? Um, a little bit paranoid. Not so much, but I, I know that he knows where I live, so I'm like... Of course, I'm going to be paranoid. But when I got my parents with me here,
0: you know? Have you left this property at all?
3: Only to the hospital. Only to the hospital. I don't leave anywhere. There's no life for me around here no more. I'm scared I'm going to get killed. And this time they're going to shoot me in my head. And I already know. My son, he gives me words. He likes to be outside sometimes. I told him I don't want, to want you outside. It's dangerous. That guy knows you're my kid. How about he wants to hit you or something? How about he makes up his mind and wants to shoot at you? Stay home.
0: And... Are you getting money together? Or are people helping you out to relocate?
3: Um, I'm with Ceci. Uh, we told the detectives that I don't feel safe here because I'm a witness to, the, to a death, and they know i seen them. I was thinking about, I don't want to go out of state because I don't got no family anywhere else. Chicago, but the edges.
2: Yeah, well, with a family like his size... It would have to be at least a three-bedroom, I want to say. We're looking at, like, maybe 1500 a month, and a lot of places want two months um, in advance of just rent.
0: Joey is still basically confined to his property. He won't feel safe venturing out into the neighborhood until police arrest the man who shot him. He wants to help them do that. Joey's confident he can identify the shooter who hit him 11 times and killed his neighbor. But he's had a really hard time getting detectives to come so he can actually make that ID and give the police a basis for an arrest. He says detectives visited him after he got out of the hospital, but told him he was too impaired by his pain medication to make an ID that would hold up in court. That was weeks ago. Police haven't been back since. Ceci says she never pushes people to cooperate with police if they don't want to. But if they're open to it, she is encouraging and tries to help facilitate that cooperation, no matter how hard the Chicago Police Department can make that sometimes. I
2: have a connection with the um, detectives, and they are out on vacation, but I am in contact with somebody else to see where this case is. But at this point, I think it's been long past due. They need to come and speak to him already.
0: There's no question in your mind that you know who it was that did the shooting? Yes. And you told that to police? Yes. Are you, how does it make you feel that they haven't been back since three weeks ago?
3: I don't know. You know, they take their time. They, you know, they, um, I heard they're on vacation. And like, that's cool to take a vacation because you work hard, you work for, you work for what you do. And, but what about me, man? We got to get this guy. He can hurt somebody else.
0: They got to go and take care of him. They got to go lock him up. Fed up with waiting, Sessie and Joey call the detective's office to see if someone will come and interview Joey so he can finally make an idea of the person who shot him.
2: So we're calling and requesting somebody in the higher-ups to
0: make that connection to see where this case is at. Joey gets a sergeant on the phone at the police station who tells him none of the detectives working the case are in the office. Sessie, Joey, and Joey's brother crowd around the phone in the backyard to listen to the call. It seems like the sergeant has absolutely no idea what incident he's calling about.
3: I seen his whole face. He was the driver.
0: And he was the shooter. And um, and all, all you guys asking me, you kept asking me who did it, who did it, and I'm telling you. The sergeant asked Joey if he saw who the driver was and who the shooter was. The sergeant is confused for a bit until Joey explains, yet again, the driver was the shooter.
3: Yes. I, 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 he
0: was the one pulling the trigger. I didn't. I didn't the sergeant see asked department. for Joey's address. It's something the department already has. Detectives have been here. As the call continues... Joey's brother gets frustrated and starts prompting him.
1: Are they coming over here? Ask them, are you guys coming over here? Ask them, bro. Because you need to talk to these people so they can come make an
0: arrest, bro. This dude's going to wait till he comes around here and blast someone else? I hear all the time from police that the reason they solve so few shootings and murders is because people just refuse to cooperate. It is the go-to line from Police Brass when they face criticism for the fact that police solve at most half of all the city's murders. In many years, it's much lower than that. But here you have Joey, a victim of a shooting and a witness to the killing of an innocent old man. He says he knows for certain he can ID the shooter. He's desperate to help police catch him. And yet, this sergeant on the other end doesn't seem to have any idea who Joey is. He apparently doesn't have anyone else available who knows anything about the case either. It's a level of customer service that would be absolutely unacceptable, even with much lower stakes. It's like the police are hindering their own murder investigation. The sergeant starts trying to wrap up the conversation. He says he's going to look into Joey's case and be back in touch. When you think they'll come and see me? The sergeant's not sure. He tells Joey they just caught another murder yesterday, so they're busy. But he says at some point they're going to come out to Joey and have him look at a photo array and try and pick out the shooter. That is, of course, what Joey was hoping to schedule on the call today. Sessie is not happy. Neither is Joey or his brother. Very ignorant. Yeah, he's very ignorant?
2: Very ignorant. Why do you say that? Because I'm his advocate and he wanted me just to shut up. That's what
0: the sergeant wants. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he said, you know, he said, I'm going to look into this guy. Do you believe
1: him? No, I don't believe him. You think he was that's just trying to get Yeah, him? just to get him off, you know. Just to say something to keep them all like, OK, he's going to look into a guys, so don't worry about it. He's not going to look into nothing. They don't care.
0: I asked the Chicago Police Department about Joey's case and the difficulty he's had getting detectives to just come to his house so he can make an I.D. They declined to comment, saying it was still an active investigation. While Joey waits for police to come talk to him again and arrest the man he believes is out to kill him, Joey and his family are confined to a crowded house and posted stamp backyard, hiding in plain sight. At least right now, they don't have enough money to move, and Sessie has come up empty, trying to find emergency funds to help them. Money, or the lack of it, hangs over so much of what Ceci does. The family she helps, they never have enough, Not enough to relocate, not enough to pay for medical care, not enough to afford funerals. The fault lines in our society are so visible traveling around with Ceci, the different ways we fail the most vulnerable, the way we make things so hard for people at the bottom. A small but glaring example from Ceci's work, when gunshot victims are released from the hospital, they aren't sent home with enough supplies to actually tend to their wounds. So Sessie goes into her own pocket and begs the people around her to make up the difference. She travels around with a mini medical supply closet in the back of her SUV.
2: Um, so this is my little caddy. Oh, sorry, I got this in here. Oh, was
4: right here. Yeah,
2: so this is glasses and bandages, um, some medical tape.
0: And this is what, all of here?
2: This was all I bought or donated. So, of course, first things first.
0: Gun violence is a national crisis. It's a problem so big and important, it's the subject of multiple White House press conferences. But it falls to people like Ceci to provide bandages and sterile water to the victims. And how are you, this is, if this is too personal, tell me, but, you know, you're, you've got a big family. How are you doing? I'm broke I'm broke All the while, Sessie's job has her driving from one desperate person to the next One day, she's helping a family who lost their home to a fire They have to be out of this hotel by tomorrow, 11 o'clock Another day, it's a young father shot in the leg
1: Did you mean it just happened all too fast?
0: Then it's a mom burying her son Before my children bury me, I have to bury a child and a young wife getting her first look at her husband in a casket as Ceci holds her arm and gently guides her into the room.
2: When you're ready, there's no rush to go. When you're ready.
0: (sighs) It was after a different funeral that Ceci's workhorse SUV, the one that also acts as a roving medical supply closet, broke down. She had to get the car fixed in order to do her job. An unexpected expense that was a major hit.
2: Well it was nine hundred eight hundred and like eighty bucks. Um, and then I don't know how much the brakes are gonna cost me. But Yeah. I'm annoyed. Yeah.
0: Hey, how are you? I'm I'm alright. You feeling okay today? Yeah.
2: No. Tell him the truth.
0: One day, we're at Sassy's house, at the kitchen table, talking about her bills. Sassy's daughter, Michelle, comes into the room. Michelle's been sick for more than a year, only so far, the doctors haven't been able to say exactly what is going on. Sassy can barely stand watching her daughter in so much pain and with so few answers. Michelle's sickness is also putting a strain on the family's already tight finances. She was my backbone.
2: She worked and helped pay the bills, so now that she's not working. She was supposed to work yesterday. One day a week, she's a dental assistant or dental hygienist, whatever you want to call it. And she's not even doing that no more. She can't stand. They're giving her insulin and other pills and nothing's working. Nothing is working. Watching her the way she is right now, it's it's disturbing to me. It bothers me. She told, she told me last week, she goes, Mom, I know I'm dying. She goes, I know I'm dying. She wants to make funeral arrangements.
0: Somehow, through everything going on at home, Sessie is still helping others through their darkest days. Now that her car is fixed up, Sessie is back on the road. Today, she's at Mount Sinai hey, Hospital again. Where is she? I think that's her. Yeah. She got so skinny. Sessie is meeting a young woman named Destiny who who is coming to the hospital for a checkup.
4: I shot in my legs and my wrist,
0: and my stomach and my back. Destiny was shot during a fight on the city's southwest side. Another young woman, 23-year-old Jessica Castro, was killed in the same shooting. The shooting happened about three months ago. Destiny was standing off to the side, holding a gun, while Jessica beat up another woman. Then, the boyfriend of the woman getting beaten up pulled out a gun and started shooting. He hit Destiny 14 times. She was in a coma for two weeks. He killed Jessica with a shot to the chest.
4: I shouldn't have been there, but I had two other friends or associates that basically took me there. And... Yeah, if they wouldn't have took me there, this probably would have never probably happened to me. But I mean, I don't talk to them no more. I don't associate myself with them no more.
0: Do you think that's is that healthy for you, or you miss them?
4: Nah, I was. I feel like I'm better off without them. Jesse's nodding. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Anybody that would put you in a
2: predicament like that is not your friend. Anybody.
0: Sessie goes up with Destiny into the hospital for her visit with the doctors.
4: The doctor is, what number is a doctor?
0: Destiny is hoping to get news about whether or not they can close up her stomach and take out her colostomy bag. News, she says, would make her so happy. However, the appointment does not contain any such good news. There are no setbacks, and Destiny is progressing in getting movement back in her arm and wrist but it will still be months before they can close up her stomach. After the appointment, a thick-necked detective and his partner meet Destiny and Ceci in a first-floor waiting area. They walk around to find an unoccupied room in the hospital where they can talk. Somehow, even though it's been three months, Destiny says this is the first time police have reached out for an interview. In fact, just like Joey, Destiny says she's actually had a hard time getting a hold of them. She keeps hearing the detective on the case is on vacation or out of the office. Despite the previous lack of communication, the detectives have made progress on the case. They've brought with them a photo array for Destiny to look over. They won't let me sit in on their interview with Destiny, so I head outside and wait. Destiny and Ceci spend about 20 minutes with the detectives and then come outside.
4: I didn't really want to talk, honestly but it's, I, I want him to get caught. I don't want him to still be out there. I mean, he literally killed somebody. I'm just, I just survived. So I described the fight and told him what happened. And the next thing you know, then they pulled out the photo ray and I identified my shooter. She did great.
2: And not only is it going to solve... Her case, but it's going to solve the homicide of Jessica Castro.
0: What did they say about, like, do they know where he's at? I mean, I know, you know, they're going to make an arrest. They
2: don't, they can't share that with us. But yeah, of course, they got a lineup
0: already. It would not go as simply or as easy as that as the case unfolded in the coming months. But at the time, it seemed like a positive ending to a hard day. After waving a happy goodbye to Destiny, Sessie deflates in front of me. She sits down on a bench in a small patch of green between the hospital and a busy road. Fixing the car put a serious dent in her savings. Her house is bursting at the seams after one of her adult daughters was forced to move in, bringing her five children with her. Sessie's trying to keep it all together on basically just her salary of about 3000 a month.
2: My rent's 1980. I need gas in my car. The light's going to get shut off two months behind on the rent I didn't work a couple of days my son Michael's been cutting grass you know trying to make money Yeah. he gave me $50 yesterday you know what I, I've been looking at honestly I was I was going to leave just pick up and leave but I don't even have the money for that Patrick. Yesterday. Yesterday I got on my phone. I was sitting in my car. I don't know if it's still on here. I was on Southwest. Any cheap flight, anywhere it goes, I'll go. Just to get away. But why do that when I have to come back and everything's there? All the same problems.
0: Sessy says she's looking for a second job to help catch up on bills. I can't see where she'd have the time. She says she'd just sleep in her car between shifts if she has to. Ultimately, even with all the attention being paid to the kind of work Sessy does, she's still serving some of the poorest and most marginalized people in our society. And the people doing this work, they're coming from those same marginalized groups. There's just so much need. It leaves Sessie and Fats each feeling like they're on a knife's edge, teetering between celebrated anti-violence hero and just another broke former gang member. On the next episode of Motive, we'll hear from Jonte Adams, a father who was in the car with his seven-year-old daughter when she was killed by bullets meant for him. Sometimes I just can't fathom that I was so blind. We'll learn how Fats got into the gang life and how he got out.
1: Some older guys came like, who should you got? But I'm like,
0: man. they like, oh no, you can't do that. And we'll delve into how Joey's shooting is impacting his young children. Do you feel nervous going out? Kind of, but not really. Because I'm like with a group of friends. A quick postscript. Humpty, the worker in Garfield Park whose job was in the balance, he did end up getting his contract extended. He still seems to be allergic to the mic. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Patrick Smith. Marie Mendoza is our producer. Our editor is Rob Wildeboer. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Tracy Brown is our chief content officer. Our story consultant is Cecilia Mannion. Additional help from Natalie Moore, Kate Cahan, Shannon Heffernan, Anna Sevchinka, and Joe Dessau. Music from Jeff Else, Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Network.